Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 6 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. The King and His Work Part 1. We have now followed with some minuteness the biography of Edward before his accession to the throne. No part of his life throws so great a light on his character and career or illustrates more clearly the grounds on which we reckon Edward among the greatest of English statesmen. His long years of apprenticeship had not simply formed his character, they had also suggested the main lines of the policy on which he was to act for the whole of his long reign. It is not too much to say that every important aspect of Edward's work as king had been already foreshadowed in his work as a king's son. He had risen superior to his early failures in the field and in the council chamber. His first defeats had given him that power of adapting his tactics to circumstances, which is his chief claim to be called a great commander. The Welsh policy suggested to him by his advisers when yet a mere boy contains in substance the Welsh policy of his reign. His early dealings with the fierce Llewellyn and his early efforts to make his Welsh lands shire ground need only a slight development to become the policy which had its final outcome in the defeat and death of the Welsh prince and the annexation of the principality to the crown. In the same way, Edward's early experiences in Gascony suggested to him the whole of his subsequent policy for the consolidation and security of his Aquitanian possessions. Moreover, his constant dealings with the princes of Europe, most of them his near kinsfolk, cannot but have brought before his mind the main principles of that able and successful foreign policy which is one of the greatest results of his reign. And it is already a commonplace that the experience of the barons' wars substantially created the home policy of Edward's later life. To strengthen and develop the royal power, to widen the hold of the king on the nation by taking the people themselves into partnership with him in the administration of his inheritance, to work out under happier auspices the great ideas of Montfort, and to turn schemes meant to bring about a revolution into devices for the regular government of the realm, to stand forth above all as the truly national king 
who ruled through the advice of his own nobles and scorned the foreign favorite and parasite. Such were among the main lines of Edward's work as a king. Every detail almost of his constitutional policy had been already made clear to him during the life of his father. The lack of good laws during his father's days had impressed upon him the need of legislation, while the want of good government had made him realize the supreme importance of establishing sound administration. Thus it was, with plans already formed and ambitions already formulated, that Edward entered in 1272 into the great position of an English king. He had already resolved to make England supreme in Britain and England the mediator of Europe. He had already become a national constitutional ruler of a free and high-spirited people. Thirty-three years of battling with the world had now formed both the body and mind of Edward. He looked every inch a king. The chroniclers speak with enthusiasm of the beauty and dignity of his person, he was a man of unusual and commanding height. Like another Saul, he overtopped most of his subjects by a head and shoulders. His frame was cast in a strong but elegant mold and was admirably proportioned. He had the long, sinewy arms that make a good swordsman. His long, lean legs, which won for him the popular nickname of Longshanks, gave him that firm grip over the saddle that makes the consummate horseman. All through his life he was as upright as a dart. His chest was broad and vaulted. Constant exercise and incessant activity kept down any disposition to corpulence, and down to his death he retained the slim regular proportions of his youth. His flowing hair shone in extreme youth like burnished silver. It gradually assumed a yellow tinge, and by the time he had reached manhood, had attained a deep black color, which again turned in old age to a snowy whiteness. He never showed any tendency to baldness, and the white hair of his age was as thick and abundant as the yellow tresses of his youth. His forehead was high and broad. His features were refined and regular. The only thing that marred their perfect beauty was a slight droop of the left eyelid, which he had inherited from his father. His dark eyes, soft and dove-like when he was at rest, shot forth fire like the eyes of a lion when he was moved to anger. They remained undimmed to extreme old age. His nose was large, well-shaped, and aquiline. His teeth remained strong and firm down to the day of his death. His complexion was dark, clear, and pale, and was thought to indicate his choleric temperament. His voice had a slight stammer in it, but when animated he could quite overcome this impediment and speak with a simple and natural eloquence that often moved his susceptible auditors to tears. Edward's character was cast in a grand and simple mold. His general instincts were high-minded, noble, and generous. Like most medieval heroes, he was a man of strong emotions, and the rough wear and tear of a long life did not destroy, though perhaps they deadened, the deep affections and the loving heart 
half hidden by his pride and passion. He was the best of sons, fathers, and husbands. He was the most faithful and generous of friends. His chief fault in those relations was his slowness to see anything blameworthy in those whom he loved, or even in those who had rendered him useful service. His private life was absolutely pure and without reproach. His public action, always able, was with a few exceptions strictly upright and honorable. He had almost a passion for truth and justice, and it was not for nothing that keep troth was inscribed upon his tomb. A character so strong, a will so firm as Edward's, could not be without its faults. Many of these proceeded from the extraordinary impetuosity and violence which lay at the bottom of Edward's temperament. This disposition accounts for a good deal of the wanton and brutal violence of the doings which so scandalized right-thinking men in his extreme youth. It accounts for many of those grave defects of character brought out with such uncompromising clearness and precision by the nameless partisan of Simon de Montfort, who wrote that song of Lewis, which best explains to us the standpoint of the baronial party. To this hostile writer, Edward was a lion in pride and fierceness, not slow in attacking the strongest places and fearing the onslaught of no man. But there was a less noble side to his character. He was, says the songwriter, a panther in inconstancy and changeableness. When he is in a strait, he promises whatever you wish, but as soon as he escapes, he repudiates his promise. In this respect, Edward never quite got the better of the evil tendencies of his youth. The violation of his oath after the capture of Gloucester in 1264 is too faithfully paralleled by the treacherous way in which a few years before his death he obtained papal absolution from his oath to observe Magna Carta and the Forest Charter as enlarged and developed in 1297. Moreover, Edward was always excessively rash, impulsive, hot-headed, passionate, and even vindictive. Yet a humble submission or the frank acknowledgment of an offense at once mollified him, however furious was his wrath. One day when he was a young man he was hawking on the banks of a certain river. One of his companions posted on the other bank of the stream to that occupied by Edward blunderingly let free a hawk which had seized a wild duck amidst the osier beds. Edward grew angry, abused, and threatened his follower. But the careless falconer, seeing that neither bridge nor ford was near, answered impudently, It is well for me that the river divides us. Edward burst into a furious rage, plunged with his horse into the unknown depths of the stream, and having successfully crossed over, climbed with difficulty up the steep bank, hollowed out by the action of the water. The luckless follower fled in terror, but Edward pursued him with drawn sword and soon caught him up. But his anger was at once ended when the man uncovered his head and knelt humbly to implore his master's forgiveness. 
Edward put back his sword in the scabbard, and soon lord and follower were back at the river bank, seeking with the utmost harmony to bring back the strayed hawk. Many years later, Edward was moved to anger by the clumsiness of one of the squires attending him on the occasion of the marriage of his daughter Margaret. He seized a stick and soundly belabored the unlucky squire with it, inflicting on him such injury that when the fit of temper was over he heartily repented of his violence and sought to heal his servant's wounds by a present of the very considerable sum of thirteen pounds six shillings eight pence. Edward hated his enemies quite as heartily as he loved his friends and liked power so well that he grew quite mad at the least opposition or contradiction. He was always terribly in earnest, and being quite convinced of the honor and integrity of his own ends, was always ready to impute unworthy motives to his opponents, and was, in fact, opposed so unscrupulously that he often had good reason for his worst suspicions. Edward also possessed that strange power, often found in temperaments like his, of persuading himself that what he desired was right, and that the means which he selected to attain a good end were necessarily consecrated by the excellence of his object. The wiles or tricks, sang the partisan critic of his youth, by which he is advanced he calls prudence, and the way whereby he attains his end, crooked though it be, seems to him straight and open. Whatever he likes, he says is lawful, and he thinks that he is released from the law as though he were greater than the king. Edward was never a very reflective or thoughtful man. Like many great men of action, he took the course that seemed to him the most likely to lead him straight to his end, and did not ponder too much over its lawfulness. But so far as he pondered over his courses at all, he sought honestly to live according to the law, and there have been few prophecies more signally falsified than that of the writer of the Song of Lewis, who foretold that Edward's reign would be a most miserable one for England, inasmuch as his wish was to be a king above the law. Edward was proud of his high standard of honor and truthfulness, and as compared with his contemporaries, his boast is in no wise a vain one. But if those who saw in Edward a lawless self-seeker were but blind judges, still more have those erred who saw in him a cold-blooded calculating and scheming lawyer, heedless of justice, so long as he could get formal right on his side. It is not in such ways that the right clue can be attained for the appreciation of his ardent and impetuous character. Edward was very conscious of his royal dignity, and proud and ambitious to no ordinary degree, but there was little that was mean or sordid even in the lowest of his ambitions. The aristocratic contempt for men of mean birth and humble station, which had been so unpleasant a feature of his early manhood, he almost outlived. Though at times of danger and difficulty, when the Welsh troops showed signs of mutiny before Falkirk, or when the weavers of Ghent rising against the oppressions of his soldiers threatened his very life, it flashed forth again with something of its old insolence and scorn. 
but there was very little in Edward of that miserable class feeling that was so unlovely a feature among the knights and gentlemen that supported the court of his grandson. Edward loved his people and possessed many popular qualities that endeared him to them. Though constantly beset by troubles and difficulties, he seldom lost his cheerfulness except to sorrow for the loss of those dear to him. Down to an advanced age, he joined in the rough and not very refined practical jokes and merriments of medieval society. One Easter Monday he suffered five ladies of the court to make him their mock prisoner and bought his redemption by a liberal present to his captors. Nor was he less gracious to his followers of low degree. One day, in a merry mood, as he was setting out for the hunt, he gave his horse to his washerwoman, Matilda of Waltham, on the condition of her riding a race on the king's hunter and defeating the other competitors. His ready eloquence was in itself a means of delighting his people. No less commendable were his earnestness and indefatigability at the seat of judgment. He delighted in unraveling a knotty point of law, and prided himself upon his zeal for the poor and oppressed. He gloried in his reputation for clemency. He really sought to identify himself with every rank of his people, and this great endeavor made him a thoroughly national king. Edward had the good luck to pass through a sterner discipline and a stricter apprenticeship than commonly falls to the lot of those called to ascend an hereditary throne. He thus learnt to put a curb upon his feelings and repress the first rush of his angry passions in a way that speaks most strongly for the strength of his character and the nobleness of his aims. His self-restraint in his middle life was for such a man admirable. As misfortunes gathered around him, he became less able to conceal or check his emotions, but down to the last he withstood opposition that might well have ruined the temper of a calmer and milder man. Not only had he to face the opposition of large sections of his subjects and the enmity of powerful kings and nations, his private affairs were always made miserable by the millstone of debt which hung round his neck from his first entrance into public life and from which he could never free himself down to his dying day. The burden which Edward had inherited from his father was sufficiently overwhelming. He increased it by the obligations which he had been forced to incur during his crusade. When he came to the throne, he found himself hopelessly in the hands of the greedy companies of Lombard bankers who had begun to push themselves into the position which had hitherto been monopolized by Jewish usurers. In after years, Edward formed so many great designs that he was always more and more in want of money. From this perpetual indebtedness sprang half the defects of Edward's character and more than half of the difficulties of his reign. Edward's poverty accounts for his trouble with the Londoners, his eagerness to open up new taxes, and the ever-increasing discontent of his subjects. He handed on the burden to his son, and the weight, which the great father had hardly been able to bear, proved too overwhelming for his weak and incompetent successor. 
the limited character of Edward's means made necessary a life of the utmost frugality and sobriety. Edward's own personal tastes drew him strongly in the same direction. He was always rigidly economical and even upon occasions parsimonious. But on state occasions his hospitality was truly regal and he found enough money to keep up a good stud of horses, though he was ever lavish in giving them away to his friends and kinsfolk. He was particularly bountiful to poor knights, feeling the full force of the strong tie which bound the knighthood of Christendom together in a single brotherhood of equals. The simplicity of his attire suggested the simplicity of his daily life. After his coronation, Edward never once wore his crown, thinking that the dignity which it gave to his royal state was more than counterbalanced by the heaviness of the great bauble. He wore the plainest clothes. He did not affect the royal purple, but like a common man, was clad in a plain short-sleeved tunic bordered with fur, and all of the same color. One day he was asked by a hermit why he affected such ordinary garb. I should not be a better man, answered Edward, however splendidly I was dressed. The same simplicity was manifested in all his habits of life. But for all that, Edward was keenly conscious of his royal dignity, and there were few who could venture to presume upon his easy familiarity. His court was very free from the luxury and extravagance which are the besetting sins of courts. Though many of Edward's followers were vicious and corrupt men, they were with hardly an exception hard workers and earnest politicians. The tournament in early life, hunting and hawking until the end of his career, were Edward's favorite diversions. As a sportsman, his special delight was in chasing down deer on horseback and on catching them up, slaughtering them with his sword. His strong love of the chase made him as jealous as the Norman kings in keeping up his forests and maintaining the forest laws in all their old oppressive rigor. His constant indulgence in field sports and manly exercises secured him splendid health, though his infancy had been sickly, and though his wound in the Holy Land gave him trouble for many years. The same careful way of life combined with strict frugality and temperance secured for Edward a green old age. He had attained what in the Middle Ages was the very advanced age of sixty-seven before there were any signs of his constitution breaking down. Edward was deeply and unaffectedly religious. His piety was shown not only in his assiduity and attendance at Mass and in his zeal in going on pilgrimages, but in his large and unostentatious charities, all the more creditable when we remember his chronic state of debt, and in the whole tone and tenor of his daily life. Straightened as were his resources, Edward was able to make grants to the two English universities, to the Knights of St. John, and to many famous monasteries such as Durham, Glastonbury, Westminster, and St. Albans. He was the refounder of the Cistercian Abbey of Conway when the needs of his Welsh policy 
involved the absorption of the old home of the monks in his new castle and fortifications. He contributed largely toward the cost of the new church and buildings erected by the monks on the opposite bank of the Conway River at Maynham. But his great work as a monastic patron was the foundation of the Cistercian Abbey of Vale Royal in a deep and secluded hollow of the Valley of the Weaver, in the very heart of his own earldom of Chester. This pious undertaking Edward began in 1266, in fulfillment of a vow which he had made when exposed to great peril of shipwreck. But lack of means made the progress of the work slow, and it was not until 1277 that the monks were able to enter into the full possession of their founder's bounty. But while Edward thus practically showed his sympathy for the older religious orders, he was, like most men of his age, strongly under the influence of the mendicant friars. His confessors were generally Dominicans, but the Franciscans, in whose great church in London he treasured up the heart of his beloved Eleanor, were also largely in his confidence. Like a good Englishman, Edward reverenced most of all the saints of English birth, such as St. John of Beverley, to whose shrine he was never weary of making pilgrimages, and above all, St. Edward the Confessor, his namesake and predecessor. His religion was of that half-martial kind which is so characteristic of the early Middle Ages, but which was already becoming more rare owing to the new types of spiritual perfection held up by the saints among the mendicant orders. This element gave a reality and fervidness to Edward's constant aspirations after a crusade. What in the mouth of Philip the Fair or Clement V was the merest hypocrisy or conventionality was to Edward an honest and sincere recognition of the clear ideal of the duty of a Christian knight. And Edward was all too ready to read his crusading ambitions into his everyday wars. Clewellyn or Robert Bruce were to him men accursed by Holy Church, and he saw too readily a high religious impulse in what was largely the prompting of his own ambition and revenge. But a respect for ecclesiastical authority, which hampered his dealings with popes and archbishops, was at least a very real thing. Not even the barefaced partisanship of a series of fiercely Guelphic popes, not even the persistent and wearing opposition which Edward's own prelates so constantly offered to his policy, could quite eradicate from Edward's mind the deep lessons of respect for the authority of the Holy See and the spiritual independence of the English episcopate which had been so firmly ingrained into his mind in youth. But Edward, with all his spirit of reverence, was singularly free from the grosser superstitions of his time. On one occasion, a beggar pretended that his sight had been restored through his prayers at the tomb of Henry III, and Queen Eleanor of Provence was delighted that this miracle attested her dead husband's claim to sanctity. But Edward drove the beggar away in anger, saying, My father would rather have had such a lying knave blinded than have given him back his sight. 
Edward piously saw in all the many hair-breadth escapes of his adventurous life the direct finger of providence, and with something of a fatalist's contempt of danger, exposed himself to the worst risks of battle and siege. When his horse was shot by a missile from Stirling Castle, his followers begged him to withdraw from the range of its walls, but Edward answered in biblical phrase, A thousand shall fall beside me, and ten thousand at my right hand, but their arrows shall not come nigh unto me to do me hurt, for the Lord is with me. One day in his youth he was playing chess with a certain knight in a vaulted chamber. Without any particular reason, he arose from his seat and went to the other end of the room. Thereupon a huge stone crashed down from the roof, destroying the chair on which Edward had been sitting. He attributed his preservation to Our Lady of Walsingham, whom he held ever afterwards in special honor. Edward was preeminently a man of action, but he was by no means altogether lacking in intellectual and artistic tastes. He certainly had a familiar knowledge of English, French, and Latin. Possibly he also knew Spanish, in which tongue he sometimes corresponded with his brother-in-law, Alfonso of Castile. He was no great lover of books and no very bountiful patron of men of letters, yet he seems to have had some taste for the romances of chivalry, delighting in the legends of knights and paladins, in histories of such as those of Tancred the Crusader, in devotional treatises, and in books on agriculture. It was from a manuscript belonging to Edward at the time of his crusade that Rustician of Pisa made his well-known abridgment of the vast cycle of Breton romances, a work which attained a great success and which, translated into Italian, afforded the material for a large number of poems. Nor should Edward's interest in English history be forgotten, or his care for the safe preservation of the national archives under proper custody. He was much more a patron of art than of letters, showing a particular taste for richly decorated sculpture, as seen in the crosses commemorating Queen Eleanor, and perhaps still better in the exquisite statuary on the magnificent tombs of his father, wife, and brother in Westminster Abbey, the work apparently of an Italian artist. He completed his father's rebuilding of Westminster, but lack of means prevented his indulging in the expensive taste of building on a grand scale. He was also fond of music, supplementing his English trumpeters and harpers with German fiddlers, and rejoicing even in his hostile progresses in Scotland when seven women met him on the wayside and sang before him the songs of their country, as they had been wont to do in the days of King Alexander. End of section 6